As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past few years, if not longer, you would have noticed that there has been a rightward shift in British politics. Um, I've spoken previously on this nebulous category that is the white working class. And this has been weaponized by the right as if to say that the operative term in that phrase, white, is a cause of disadvantage for some people when we know that when we know that's not the case. So joining me today, I have Aurelien with me to kind of unpack the state of affairs in British politics. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So let's go straight into it. The question, my first question is, how have we got to where we are today in terms of British politics? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's a huge question to, to start with. I mean, how long do we have, right? Look, I, I mean, I, yeah, I could talk about this all day. It's been it's been a long process, and uh, and I think you know it's it's quite important to think about it as a long process because because we tend to think about the rise of a far right, the the rise of a of, of a concept of a white working class as something fairly recent. You know, usually we think mm-hmm. about it in relation to Brexit or to Trump, you know, and 2016 being this kind of core moment. But but in fact, it's been you know it's been a long time coming, and and it's not just the rise of a far right. It's not just the rise of Nigel Farage, Donald Trump. It's also the way, you know, the left, the centre-left, the way they've abandoned left-wing politics, the way they've abandoned the working class and the way then they woke up to the concept of the working class again. But this, it had, by yes. that stage, this concept had been hijacked by the far right. And I'm trying to be precise here by saying the concept has been hijacked by the, by the far right. It's not yes. the working class itself that was hijacked and that, that became turned to the far right. It's very much a concept. If we If we look at it, you know, in this kind of broader kind of time frame, we can see that the far right kind of in various countries, and of course, it's not linear and it, you know, it's very dependent on context. But if you think of of the case of France, for example, but also also Mm -hmm. the UK to some extent, although less successfully, the far right started turning to the working class in in the 90s, 2000s, and and increasingly in the 2000s and 2010s, when when they saw that the left had abandoned the field, partly because they had decided to move more towards the the centre. And, you know, we've kind of more left-wing parties and even communist parties getting in coalition with with centre-left parties and sometimes even centre-right parties and Mm -hmm. and moving towards kind of neoliberal politics or accepting at least the neoliberal hegemony. And what happened is you you have this kind of, you have a deindustrialization, which of course leads to a lot of poverty, leads to a lot of discontentment, leads to a lot of kind of feeling of disillusion as well. But what is fascinating, I think, in this is that for quite a while and in, in various countries, the kind of working class that was attached to the left and particularly to the radical left communist parties and socialist parties, they don't turn to the far right. The people who turn to the far right in the 2000s or in the 90s, even 2000s and 2010s, for example, in France, where there's a real kind of far-right push to, to kind of absorbing uh, the far-right vote, it's it's actually, uh, the working class vote, sorry, it's actually the the new working class. It's the children of the people who used to vote socialist, communist, who used to work wow. in factories. And so it's the people who, if you want, have never been socialized within these factories. They're not socialized in the working class the way the, the people who were part of unions or the people who were part of, kind mm. of pro- factory communities were. So it's the people who have not had a this kind of political outlet 
if you want. So it's the people who wow. have been cut off. And so that's, that's how the Front National tried to claim the working class. And in fact, it was really a, a, a dodgy claim. And it's, it's, it's pretty frustrating that it's been lapped up by the media and by politicians, because yep. what happens is the working class completely switches off. And for good reasons, right? They're not being represented by the left anymore. They're certainly not represented by the far right. And I think it's incredibly condescending to think that the far right, that the working class buys the fact that the far right, which for a long time has been very neoliberal, which is incredibly elitist as well, which doesn't like yep. workers, but the far right would be their defenders all of a sudden. And so the far, there is a, a section of the far right, that, uh, a section of the working class sorry, that turns to the far right, but it's small. It's always existed. It's nothing entirely mm-hmm. new. And and what we forget is that most of the, far, uh, of the working class abstains, doesn't turn up anymore. And, and mm. it's incredibly frustrating to then, you know, you get to the point where the narrative is, well, the working class is turning to the far right. And you get to the point where the media is talking about it. And you get to the point eventually where, the centre-left parties like the Labour Party in the UK, uh, the Party Socialist, or even the Communist Party in France buy into that. And they all try to tap into this kind of working class that votes to the far right, which is, you know, one out of 10 of the working class people. But, but that's enough to kind of push that narrative. And so instead of focusing on actually working class issues such as employment, education, uh, pensions, all of these kind of things, yep. they start focusing on immigration. They start focusing on so-called cultural grievances on Islam, particular, yep. maybe more in France than it is in the UK, and, and all of this. And it's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating because you see these kind of left-wing parties fighting for one-tenth one of the working class, while nine-tenth is, well, a, a big chunk is still voting for the left and the rest is completely abandoned. And of course, that leads to the racialization of a working class because the, the working class that they are creating and fighting for is not any kind of working class. A, it's a far-right working class, or it's a yep. working class that votes for a far-right, but it's a far-right that is defined in it by its whiteness, not by mm-hmm. its class anymore. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, that kind of, of course, naturalizes the fact that the far-right is white, the far-right is reactionary, and if only we didn't have... Uh, sorry, the working class is white, the working class is reactionary, and if only we didn't have a working class, we could have, you know, liberalism. And, of course, it's... Uh, <laughs> you know. But the question then is, so when you see what happened to Jeremy Corbyn and decimation and the continued decimation of Labour, when we see Brexit, are strategically, isn't it then a strategic move to see that the currents maybe are rejecting hard left policies, are rejecting left-wing politics? Isn't the natural trajectory for like, let's say, centre-left parties like Labour or even... I feel like if I say his name, I might see the devil appear. But when Tony Blair comes on TV and he says that, you know, Labour can't win being that left. Labour has to be in the centre. Labour has to work with unions, but also work with business to win. That's the only way Labour wins. So when you see that, is that not strategically a smart move for those those centre-left parties like Labour? Well, yeah, but I mean, in that case, right, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly the same as the Republicans thinking, oh, Trump will never win. Let's not have him, right? Or, or mm-hmm. Boris Johnson is too much of a clown and he's been saying too many racist things, you know, and too yeah. many lies. He'll never be prime minister. You know, they were, you know, they just had a message that kind of carried across. And of course, it's, I mean, it's a massive uphill battle for the left, right? Whether yeah. the left is being, is being moderate and, and neoliberal and, and aping the right or far right, or whether the left is being radical, it's going to be an uphill battle, right? And you see that Starmer mm-hmm. is not doing very well at all trying to kind of play, play the game and the kind of Blairist game in a way. Yeah. I think- I think the appeal battle is, is of course, you know, there's a big problem with the media and media ownership in this in this country and concentration and all of this, which is completely skewed against Labour. But it's also creating a new narrative. And I think what what, what I do not understand in the in the claims of of you know the left needing to be a bit more kind of cunning and a bit more 
have a better strategy and a bit, be a bit more kind of mm-hmm. compromising in terms of values if they want to get back into power and all of these kind of things is that, A, it's never worked. You know, when the mm-hmm. left has moved rightwards, it sometimes worked in the very short term. It never worked in the mid to long, long term. And, you know, you can wow. look at bias cases when the left starts fighting on the grounds, on the ideological grounds of the right and far right, when it's about immigration, security, terrorism, all these things, it does not work. And of course it doesn't work because actually it naturalizes the issues that the right is, is not good at, actually. They're not even good at it, but, 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 but they own, <laughs> if you want, you know. This, yes. this is their issues. And also what, what that does is that it alienates a big chunk of supporters. And look, yep. I, I am not a... I'm not a Corbyn supporter in any way, and I had many, many issues with the way he went about uh, about his leadership. But but I think yeah. you know you have to give that to him. But he actually brought in a, a, quite a few people back to politics. Yep. You know, whether young people and and also he did not alienate some of the people who I think and I fear will be alienated from the Labour Party soon. I mean, you know, when you see this kind of calls on from from Starmer and his team to kind of have more flags to focus exactly. more on patriotism, <laughs> you know, like to to you know we 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 see calls returning about you know being tougher on immigration, closing borders. This is shocking. You know, I mean, imagine yeah. if you're if you're a, from an ethnic minority and part of yep. a working class, are you really going to kind of put up with that? And the sad thing is. You probably will, and you probably will end up voting for Starmer because there's nothing else, and that's what they're counting on. But I think it's unfair, and I think it's not democratic. And I think the left needs to be radical, as the right is radical at the moment. They need to completely shift the discourse and, mm-hmm. and the hegemony. It's super hard work, but and it will take a long time, and it will be difficult, and it's an uphill battle with, with the way the, the kind of ecosystem is at the moment. But this is exactly what the far right started doing in the 1970s and 80s. And look at where yeah. we are now, right? You know, at the beginning, they were like, Absolutely. we need to fight the cultural battle before the political one. We need to impose our ideas. And now their ideas are front, right and center. Right? Uh, yeah. So it's- No, no, absolutely. No, thank you so much. It's, I was speaking to someone I consider like a teacher. And he said to me, I think, and exactly echoing what you said, that the left doesn't have a 40, 50 year plan. And because of we're not radical enough, because we're always thinking about election to next election, we always settle for crumbs. So we're settling for the lesser of two evils always, you know, we're holding our nose when we go to vote. When the right, as you correctly said, they've been, I mean, you can say Brexit has, was started from the 70s. It's been a long time coming. So I think it's very important. I think if I'm looking at the situation, I would say that if we have to, if we're going to win it's going to be an upward battle but we've got to think about okay what's our 30 to 40 year plan in in but again i guess this is easy for us or easy for myself to say in theory when obviously people's conditions and material conditions are becoming worse and worse day by day yeah i mean you're absolutely right right and I'm, what i'm saying is like i'm not trying to be um you know utopian or idealistic yeah. and say you know we let, let's fight in a small corner and you know for 40 years and then maybe things will change and you know we'll get some mm-hmm. utopia at the end this is not what i'm saying you know i think daily mm-hmm. battles need to be fought but daily battles are fought but they're not fought by the labor party at the moment right yeah daily battles are fought by grassroots movement you know if we if we've had progress in recent years or if we had at least resistance to reaction in recent years it's been it's been for grassroots movement grassroots movements i mean look at blm for example yep. look at the, the various strikes that are taking place uh, in, in in not just in the uk in other places this is not yep. led by Labour um, and its allies anymore. And so I think, you know, it's it's not one or the other. I think, in, in fact, you know, it, you could fight these two fights together, creating some kind of positive project on the left that doesn't play on the turf of the right or far right, because that's a lost battle, and fight on a day-to-day basis to make sure that, you know, people, that, that, we, that we safeguard whatever we can at this, at this stage. But, but, but the Labour Party at the moment is not doing either. And 
I, yes. I just cannot. I mean, it, it's it's always fascinating to me because when when I talk to to colleagues about this in particular, you know, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm nominally well, I'm in a politics department or a political science department, so yes. I guess I'm nominally a political scientist. It's not a term that I that is particularly dear to me, but. <laughs> But when I talk to my colleagues, they tend to think that, you know, I'm too radical, I'm too passionate about politics, I'm mm-hmm. too potentially normative in my approach to, to academia and so on. And, you know, this is like the book we wrote with Aaron Winter. We made it very yes. clear that we, that we were taking a stand on it and, and that we believe that this was the best way for us to be impartial was to acknowledge where we were coming from politically and that we had a responsibility to do that as well. And what, what I find fascinating is when I talk to colleagues is they dismiss my ideas sometimes as being too idealistic almost. But, oh, wow. But, but to me, it, seem, it seems like the idealism is, it's not even idealism, but there is a massive denial in thinking that something that has failed for 30 or 40 years is eventually going to succeed because that's yes. what you think is, is rational and moderate. I mean, the, the path that the left has followed for the last 30 or 40 years has led us to where we are now. I mean, we can't yep. just blame the right. Tony Blair has paid that way. François Mitterrand in France has paid that way. Uh, Gerhard Schröder in Germany has paid that way. Uh, the Clintons paved that way in the US, yep. you know, the way to Trump. Uh, and Biden is, is, is not doing all he should be doing to kind of revert that. And we can talk about abiding. I feel like yeah, <laughs> he he was he was the person when I when I said you have to hold your nose and vote for him. And that's what that's well, what I yeah. meant. Yeah, I think of many people like this, but yeah. <laughs> but, but that's a good that's a good one. And actually, literally, right? Like the first time I ever voted was in two thousand and two. That was my, the first election I could vote. Oh in, wow! Uh, in France, and so you know, I, I had the two rounds uh, of a presidential election and. Mm-hmm. And if your listeners don't don't know what happened, this is the, the time when Jean-Marie Le Pen of a, of a far right Front National, a Holocaust denier, uh, got to the wow. second round of a presidential election. And in the first round, so what happened is there was massive abstention in the first round because we had had a, co- a, a coalition between the center right and the center left. No one liked them, the, the two center right and center left candidates, so no one wanted to vote for them. And we'd been told that they would get to the second round anyway. I was worried. It was nothing like prophetic or anything like that, but I was worried that Jean-Marie Le Pen might get through because everyone would, would abstain. And so I decided to vote for the Socialist Party, the center-left party, who I yeah. really disliked uh, in the first round. Uh, so I totally wasted my <laughs> why did you Why did you dislike them? Why did you dislike them? Uh, because, because they were just so so kind of like uh, unmotivating. They were so middle okay. of the road. They, you know, like it's just, yeah, they were just... They, I mean, the left had betrayed, the Socialist Party had betrayed uh, the left in, um, in 1983. So François Mitterrand had been elected in 1981 on a very radical agenda. And in 1983, mm-hmm. austerity kicked in, neoliberalization, the rise of the Front National yep. to try to divide the right, lots of things that, yeah, that, that have happened. And, you know, I'm, I don't think it's necessarily of interest here. But anyway, so I get to 2002. I don't want to vote for them. I wanted to vote for something more radical. Yes. And I didn't because I thought, you know, just in case, you know, I could help him get through at least and it's not the Front National. And then the Front National gets through and then I'm faced in the second round to vote between the Front National, so a former fascist, who probably was still a fascist, right, Holocaust denier and all that, or the center-right candidate who had like a who had many corruption scandals around him and if he got elected would probably escape them because you know eventually you know you can't get sued anymore eventually you know it's um yeah yeah and and so you had that choice and french people had that choice and some people literally went voting with with gloves with pegs on their noses with you know just to make a point right you know so it takes us back to what you were saying before and actually it happened literally in france where people went to vote between you know, between yeah, between the bad and the worst, and well, like, bad and the worst. What's what's uh, the voting age in France? I'm going to do some maths here. Eighteen. Eighteen. So 2002, that was your first vote. I'm not going to guess your age, but the reason why I'm asking this question, 
this is what a lot of young people want to hear and they hear this from people who are older the older you get the more centrist you become is that has, has that been the case for you <laughs> no, 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 well yeah i don't know look yeah maybe i'm still young then in that case no it hasn't been the case for me actually but uh interestingly yeah interestingly it really hasn't and i you know i, I think it's because i've been very lucky and i've met i've met the right people along the way well, well i hope i did anyway but um no i, I haven't i mean in, in, you know when i was 18 20 i was very much a social democrat okay yeah yeah so i didn't vote for a socialist party but i you know, I wasn't thoroughly against them. I was hoping that they, they were redeemable and I was hoping that they would kind of, um, you know, revive. And, you know, I, I took part in kind of center-left politics when I was younger and, and, and all of these things. And, uh, and, I, mm-hmm. and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it anymore because I don't believe that, A, I don't believe that's the solution to our current predicament. Mm. And also I believe that the center-left has been incredibly counterproductive in, um, in the 20 yep. years that I've had of, of political activity, let's say, you know, in my since I'm an adult, which of course is, yeah. is limiting because I don't think you should you should just be politically engaged when you turn eighteen or, or of whatever age it is, right? So yeah, no, that's not that's not been my trajectory at all. And and, I've, and since then, I mean, since two thousand and two, which was the first time I voted, I've always had a very difficult relationship with uh, with elections and voting because because okay. it was it was very scaring to you know to yeah. vote both rounds for for for, uh, for for options you didn't want in a way exactly. Uh, and and this shouldn't be democracy, right? But then, okay, so then sometimes people will say, I mean, you laid out that the white working class have been abandoned and and the majority are actually not far right. Some people will say, and this is maybe my reading of history, might not apply to the European context, but I think definitely if we look in America, that all too often when we think of white working class people, it does seem like they choose race solidarity over class solidarity a lot of the time. Well, I mean, what, what I said is, I, I didn't say that the white working class had been abandoned. I said the, the working class had been abandoned. I think okay, one of the yes. that's very important to, to think of when we think about the working class is that the working class is the most diverse section of a society, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about European countries, for example, you know, the people who came to rebuild to rebuild France, the UK and various other countries after the Second World War were people from the former colonies or colonies at the yes. time, obviously. And, and they were very much the kind of core of the working class. And, and to some extent, they still are as well. So, so, you know, I think we need to remember that, that the working class is incredibly diverse and far more diverse than the people who run our our media or run our of course or, or our private schools and so on so so i think that's the first thing to remember oh, in terms of kind of choosing kind of race interests of a class interest i mean this is fascinating and again you know these, these are long trajectories and it's happened on a number of occasions and and you know if you look at the history of the united states there's some mm-hmm. very and again you know i'm not it's not necessarily my 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 direct area of expertise particularly the historical side of, of things in, in the u.s but there mm-hmm. are some interesting cases there of of actually you know be the real attempt to divide the working class and working class solidarities between between the former kind of slaves who had been anti- emancipated uh, and, for example, the white working class at the time to kind of try and kind of keep that, this kind of segregation so that the working class wouldn't be united against the people yeah. oppressing them. Uh, and so, you know, this is this is again nothing new, and this is exactly what's happening at the moment when when the far right is trying to appeal to the working class or to the so-called white working class. Um, yeah. You know, it's divide and conquer because if you know this working class, whether you're white or not, you are far more in common with each other than you have exactly. Uh, with, you know, with Marine Le Pen or with Nigel Farage or with, exactly. uh, or with Donald Trump. I mean, that, that photo of Donald Trump and Nigel Farage in that golden elevator is fascinating exactly. to me, right? And yep. Yeah. But if you look, you know... The, again, the golden calf. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at figures as well, I mean, that's what frustrates me about it all is, you know, we, we've seen so much written about the white working class. There are so many headlines and I, co- I collected them for a while as part of my research and like so many mm-hmm. headlines in 
including in, in liberal and center-left and left-wing outlets that were saying, you know, we need to regain the white working class, we need to fight for the white working class, the white working class has turned to Trump, to Brexit, to Farage, whatever. It's just simply not true. It is not mm-hmm. true. Basic, basic electoral data shows you it is not true or it's not that simple. Again, not saying that some of the working class didn't turn to the far right, but that's nothing new, but the majority didn't. And not only okay. that, the majority of the vote for Trump or for Brexit comes from wealthier parts of society. So like, exactly. So okay. So do you think then? I'm not. I'm actually an optimist, and my position has always been of working towards a multiracial solidarity. Do you think that's still possible? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, of course it is possible. And well, I've, you know, maybe maybe I want to kind of like be an optimist as well. But I, you know, if I, <laughs> you know, look, what would we do if we went optimistic about the fact that these kind of things are possible? I think they are because they, they actually actually make sense completely. And you know certain interests have been working so hard to, to create these divisions and yet yep. and yet you see this solidarity on, on a daily basis in, in in lots of different places i mean one of the things that gives me hope on in what i'm working on at the moment and i, I i've been touching on on this particular survey for a while in my research and, and i'm working on it a bit more precisely to to kind of look at the creation of the people in my recent research is when people are asked in a number of surveys, you know, we keep hearing, you know, immigration is a is, is a major concern for people and yeah. so on, right? I'm sure you've seen headlines like this. When when you look at surveys that ask these questions, you know, what are the biggest concerns, you know, according to you in the UK at the moment or something like this? Yeah. People say immigration, they rarely put it at the top. They usually put it second, third, sometimes at the top, sometimes mostly in the UK at the top, partly in 2016, and then it fizzles out. So it's not even yeah. always the major concern. But one of the surveys that I looked at, the Eurobarometer actually, asks the same people two questions. So the one is, according to you, what are the two biggest issues facing your country at the moment? And, you know, then they're given 15 different things, you know, to choose from. So education, pensions, immigration, terrorism, whatever, right? And they have to pick two. And then the same people, they ask them the same question, except it's according to you, what are the two biggest issues you are facing at the moment? So the same people ask the two questions, your country and you, you know, you personally. Mm -hmm. And when people are asked, according to your country, immigration is quite high. It's Mm-hmm. Top once, I think, in the last 10 years, which is just during the referendum campaign. But when the same people are asked about their personal life, immigration hardly rates. It's like at wow. the bottom. It's 13th or 15th or 14th. You know, instead, you have cost of living, education, you know, pensions and things like that. So what does that say to us, right? Well, it, A, it says that we could have better headlines. You know, we have, <laughs> you know, we have, we, have, we have the same survey here that tells us two very different messages. Why do we promote one and not the other? It doesn't necessarily say that people don't care about immigration personally, but it shows that they have other concerns and it shows that different discourses could be created, different narratives mm. could be created. But if we created these different narratives, then we would have a very different society because, you know, I mean, it, I, th- I don't think it takes a genius to realize that our knowledge of society beyond our closest friends and family is mediated. You know, yes. most you don't know most of the people in the city you live in, let alone in exactly. the country you live in or the continent or whatever, right? So when mm-hmm. you go and vote, you have to rely on on some form of mediated knowledge, whether it's through, uh, you know, your kind of uh, uh, religious community or whether it's through mm-hmm. your, your trade union, your, your factory, your workplace, and quite often the media, of course, right? Yes. Um, and of course, the media doesn't tell you things that you believe automatically, but it does set the agenda, you know? So if we talk of a lot course. about immigration, when you go to vote, you'll be thinking about immigration. You might not be anti-immigrant, but you'll be thinking it's still an issue, right? But when you Mm -hmm. think about yourself and your day-to-day life, 
you don't need this mediated knowledge or not as much, you know. Yes. You'll be worried about, you know, sending your kids to school or you'll be wa- worried about your pension coming in or you'll be worried about, you know, whether you're going to have a job in a month or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, this is this is fairly obvious, this kind of mediated knowledge. And and nowadays, you know, there's been a lot of research that has shown that the mediated knowledge that we acquire through, through the media in particular, which still is one of the biggest influences in the way we make decisions about politics, well, it's massively skewed. So, for example, during the Brexit referendum, even though the economy was the most the, the topic the most talked about during the, the campaign in the media, and that was shown by some colleagues at King's College who did an amazing survey on this, mm-hmm. uh, immigration was the second most discussed issue in the media. But that was also the issue that was the most prominent in headlines, and it was yep. generally done in a negative manner. And mm. so, of course, this influences the way people you know think about these things. And you know, you could think about the same thing about about Islam in France, for example, or yes. even Islam in the UK. In France, when people are asked out of 100 people, how many do you think are Muslim? They said in 2016, they said 31%. Yes, in 2016, wow. when they were asked in 2020, how many do you think will be Muslim? They said 42%. It's mad, right? Like four out of 10 people in France are Muslim in 2020. <laughs> it's completely mad. Do you know what, what the reality is? No, what is it? Seven or 8%. Wow. So it's like people, people thought they were four times more Muslim people than they really are. And wow. when, when, we, when then the, the people who did the survey, they, they asked the respondents, they said, when I, when I tell you Muslim people, what, what do you think about? And of course, people had very negative images of Muslim of people. You know, they mm-hmm. thought about the Muslim people they see on TV. They think about the Muslim people they see on the news. And, you know, these Muslim people generally are terrorists, you know. Yeah. In France, it's people who, who don't want to integrate or so-called people who don't want to integrate and so on. So, you know, but, but of course, they don't think about the Muslim people as in the neighbor who's Muslim is mm. a good friend and he takes my children to school sometimes or he lent me tools or whatever. But, you know, but it's not it's not them. You know, he's not a problem. The problem is the Muslim, you know, and I'm doing scare quotes here, like, you know, qu- yeah, quotation yeah, marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's fascinating the, 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 way, the discourses that are, that are built. And of course, what's interesting in this then is that then it allows it allows our, our elite, whether it's our media elite, our political elite, uh, to some extent, our academic, academics as well, to, to blame the, the rise of, of reactionary ideas onto the people, even though these ideas mm. are kind of like, to some extent, created or at least at least put out there by the people who control public discourse, they then blame the people for them. So they're like, you know, oh, if we if we uh, if we talk about immigration, it's because that's what the people want. But is it what the people want, or is it what the people are told is what they want? Exactly. You know, chicken exactly. or the egg, right? And it's not and exactly. one or the other. It's a bit of both. You know, the people have agency. But I think we tend to forget far too often that some people have far more impact on public discourse than others. Exactly, exactly. So um, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about cancel culture. (laughs) (laughs) What is your take on cancel culture? Because a lot of the time I'm hearing, as you just said, people have agency and people should be able to make decisions for themselves. And, you know, the whole liberal kind of way of doing things, the liberal schema is we have to just normalize ideas. We have to, you know, have to have healthy debate, any functioning democracy allows difference of opinion. And then the left is, you know, then accused by the right of saying, no, you lot are very repressive in your outlook. You want to cancel people. You want to um, stifle debate. What would be your response and where do you kind of sit with that whole discussion? Well, I mean, look, I feel like I'm cancelled myself. I mean, you know, I've never had... (laughs) I've never had a you know a, a tribune in in any major newspaper in the UK, so you know I think I think it's just unfair. I think I should have one, and I think you should have one as well. I think you and I should you know create a union or something like that. <laughs> Let's but, do it. Let's do yeah. it. I mean, look, it's it's ridiculous, right? And I mean, so, some colleagues have written about it uh, incredibly well to show how ridiculous the whole thing is. One of the things that I was reading about very recently, and again showing that these 
things are nothing new. You know, the things that we have at the moment about cancel culture are, are the same things that people were talking about, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago when they were talking about political correctness or when they were talking yes. about no platforming, for example. And yes. Evan Smith wrote, wrote a great book on no platforming in, in universities in the UK and how it was a moral panic, you know, 40 years ago and now it's back. Yeah. But what I was reading about very recently as well is the idea of a marketplace of ideas, you know, and it's something yes. that has been used a lot by some, what, what we call with Aaron, reactionary legitimizers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea of marketplace of ideas, which is like, you know, every idea should be debated and the best ideas will, will prevail, you know, and, you know, if yes. there's a bad idea, put it in the sunlight and it will disappear. Uh, of course, as if that, that ever was true, right? Because, you yes. know, if, if that was the case, we probably wouldn't have had Nazism or fascism or, or, or racism and so on and so exactly. forth. Exactly. But I think what's fascinating about the marketplace of idea is, A, I mean, I don't know if it's denial or if it's just just people having no effects at all, is that it's never worked. And it's obvious that even in, in the marketplace, in the normal marketplace, you know, it's not necessarily the best products that win. It's also dependent on how much money you can invest in, in the product itself, in the advertising, mm-hmm. in cornering the market and all of these kind of things. And, you know, in, in terms of ideas, it is very clear that some people have far more power to put their ideas out there than others. I mean, you look exactly. at Donald Trump, for example, and his followers on, Twitter's, on Twitter. He could say something that was completely untrue, but he was saying that to millions of people. Well, yep. an academic would say, you know, in the US would, would correct him, but they had 2,000 followers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, look, even look at me, you know, I have, I have a few thousand followers on Twitter compared to some of my colleagues who would say the opposite of what I'm saying to 200,000 people. You know, mm. yes, of course, I have the right to say whatever I want, but it's not an even playing field. So I'm all for, you know, like I think free speech is a beautiful idea, but then give us even speech as well, you know, and which we don't mm. have. We don't all speak from the same position. And again, you know, if you look at the debates at the moment uh, on free speech, you know, and how it's like, especially in universities. Yeah, well, yeah, in universities, but not, not even even in activist circles. If you look at it, you know, the way the way people feel like, you know, the people who tell you they can't say anything anymore are the people who are transphobic, who are homophobic who are racist you know all these kind of people but these people are always in positions of power you know what i find Mm -hmm. fascinating is again to go back to the french case uh, which has set the trend in 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 a number of ways for the last 30 well actually since 1985 and maybe even longer but in 1985 there there was a front page in a in a a right-wing magazine le figaro magazine that said will we still be french in uh in 30 in 30 years and there was a, a Marianne, you know, the symbol of the symbol of French with a with a hijab. That was 30 years ago. Since then, wow. we've had every magazine in France who have said the taboo about Islam. We can't talk about Islam, political correctness gone mad and all that. But that's a, that's all we do in France. We only talk about <laughs> Islam in the media all the time. And the only people who cannot talk about Islam are Muslim people. We never wow. listen to Muslim people in France. It's incredible. So, for example, when the law of 2004 against the hijab in schools was passed, yes. no Muslim girl or women were wearing a hijab was interviewed. So wow. I mean, that's fascinating, right? And, you know, the hypocrisy behind all of this is, is mind-blowing. And what, what frustrates me, again, is that people who should know better fall for it. So, you wow. know, what, what's been interesting me really in, in my research is not just the far right and, and reactionaries and racists, but how, it's how they've been enabled by mm-hmm. people who should know better and people who pretend that they're against these ideas and yet fall for their tricks so easily. And, and you know, people who benefit from that, obviously, as well. And again, it's so, for me, I feel like I'm living in, as Bodhya says, a simulacra. <laughs> because I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, people like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson talking about being cancelled, I'm thinking you have over a million followers on, on your social media accounts. 
which part of you is cancelled? Yes, you might not. You might have had a a protest take place that where you're due to speak, but you are, for all intents and purposes, has still have a massive platform mm. and still have fundings. So I don't understand how that is, how they can even say they're cancelled. But I think one of the things that's 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 incredibly funny about these these people. I mean, it's funny, but they're also dangerous, obviously. But uh, mm-hmm. but what's funny about them is that they are the same people who popularized, you know, the terms uh, snowflakes. Yes. Uh, you know, social justice warrior. But these people are incredibly thin-skinned. So if you disagree yes. with them, they'll tell you that you're cancelling them. And it's it's quite yes. incredible. I mean, these people who are banging on about free speech are the first one to 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 threaten to sue others if they if they if they, um, <laughs> if they criticize them. I mean, we get the same thing in the UK as well with some prominent kind of reactionary academics threaten to sue other people for writing long, well-detailed, well-researched expose on how rubbish their ideas are. You know, it happens mm-hmm. all the time. But the how thin-skinned they are is fascinating to me. I mean, again, and it, you know, I think that, that that kind of cowardly stance of these people knowing full well that they have a lot to lose if we had more equal societies, and then they take that cowardly stance of of you know fighting tooth and nail to protect this this kind of unfair, unwarranted privilege that that, that they have. Exactly. Um, and and I think we need you know the problem again is is not so much them because I think their ideas don't have a lot of echo in in the wider society. What the problem mm-hmm. is they are being they are being hyped. They are being uh, given far too much coverage, and and people are falling for it. And I think. Again, what really, really frustrates me is the people who should know better who are falling for it and giving these people platforms and giving these people attention and giving these people more credit than they deserve and, and not exactly. giving, giving the others the credit they deserve as well. You know, I think, exactly. I think what's shocking is that falling for this idea of cancel culture is you actually never give voice to the people who are being attacked and who are at the sharp end of racism, transphobia, homophobia, exactly. sexism and so on. Exactly. And then finally, when we're talking about the UK, we see right now, as always, when America sneezes, Britain, Britain catches the cold. We find that there's been this campaign now against cultural Marxism or CRT is a Marxist ideology. What is up with that? Is it just the, the kind of typical anti-Cold War rhetoric or the anti-Kind of Soviet Union rhetoric just being reproduced or something more than that? Well, to some extent, I mean, you look, it's always the same old moral panics with different names and different, you know, different kind of terms used. I mean, again, I just find it fascinating. It's like, look, you know, if anyone really believes in cultural Marxism, you know, overtaking our universities, come and spend a day in my department and you'll see that. <laughs> uh, it's not that radical, really. And I think, you know, my department is probably very similar to any politics department in the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Like it, it, this is this is quite incredible how disconnected these people are from reality. And yet again, you know, the platforms they get, not just in the media, but you know, they are, they have the ear of a dip, uh, of a government now. You know, they they have yep. direct contact with with number ten. It's yeah, it's 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 incredibly worrying. I think how how we've let reactionaries access power and yes. proper reactionaries, you know, who who have made their way into power now, and how we still. And when I say we, you know, I'm talking about we as in the people who, again, have access to, to public discourse to some extent and yes. or more access to public discourse than, 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 than the rest of the population. is. They, 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 they've been allowed to do that and they're still allowed to do that far too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think it's, we need to, to fight back because they, they are actually not holding their punches anymore. 
Exactly. And yet we are still playing by their rules as if it was just a, a nice apolitical debate and, you know, the, exactly. the truth will prevail. I mean, finally, sorry, absolutely finally. I know we're both, we said we're both optimists, but everything you said for the last 20 minutes sounds like such a bleak situation <laughs> that, we find us, <laughs> that we find ourselves in. So if you, what can we do going forward? How could, what, what would you say is... I'm not, I mean, you're a political theorist. I know you don't want to be called that. But going forward, if you were, let's say, you had the ear of activists or organizers or people on the left, what would you be telling them? Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I, you know, I spent the last 15 years now looking at, at the far right and looking at the mainstreaming of the far right and mainstreaming yes. of far right ideas. So, you know, I spent a lot of my time mapping out the rise of reaction. And, and, and I got a bit tired of it, to be honest, because it, because it does mm-hmm. take, a, take a toll and things are not getting any better. So, yes. uh, so I thought like maybe, you know, maybe it's time for me to try and write something a bit different and something a bit more optimistic, not necessarily optimistic, but a bit more affirmative in a way, you know, instead yes. of mapping. You know, uh, and so that's my next project in a way. I mean, where, where I find some kind of solace, if not if not optimism, and probably optimism, I think is is in the very simple fact that things do not have to be this way, right? It's mm-hmm. it's all contingent, and you know, nothing says that the world should be as it is. That we should have the inequalities that we have. That we should have the poverty that we have. That we should have the racism that we have at the core of our institutions or anything like that. You know, this is not written in stone. This is not something that has always existed in human societies, and this is not something that will always exist. You know, and it could get yeah. a lot worse. It could get a lot better. It doesn't. It just simply doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy to change these things, but it can be done. And right, look, I mean, what weirdly gives me hope in change is is that you know the far right has managed to kind of change the narrative massively over the last 40 yes. years and if they could do it with their stupid ideas i think we should as well but i think we need to be far less apologetic about I what agree. we believe in and i think we need we, yeah we need to be we need to be more hopeful and we need to stop reacting i think we need to we can't just keep reacting to the far right we need of course to resist we need to be on the ground against fascists against reactionary to help the communities who are at the sharp end this is very, yes. very important, but we need to go beyond that. We can't just be reacting. We also need to be acting. We also need to be proposing something that is that is hopeful, that is optimistic, that is radical, and that is radically different to the to what is sending us in the wall, whether it's with regard to, to, to the rise of fascism, the, envi- the environmental crisis, and, and various other crises that we are facing, and real ones as opposed to the kind of moral panics that the far right and the right are trying to divert our attention onto. That was a beautiful, beautiful ending. Thank you so much. You are listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe. I will leave Dr. Aurelian's social media in the description of this episode. Please feel free to follow him. He posts a lot of great content on Twitter. Take care until next time.